Welcome to In the Weeds with Nicole Asquith, exploring the way culture shapes our relationship to the natural world. It seems like I can hardly have a conversation these days without the word apocalyptic popping up at some point. It's a genre we're familiar with, from Game of Thrones White Walkers to World War Z to Good Omens, which I personally found hilarious, and it feels like an appropriate word for this unsettling time in which fiction and reality seem to be melding. But what exactly is the apocalyptic? Well, I've had this topic on a back burner for some time, as you'll know if you listen to the intro to this podcast. I wanted to know what all these apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic scenarios in popular culture betrayed about how we feel about what's happening to the natural world. It's hard not to think that there's some sort of sublimation of our anxiety about climate change and other threats facing the world in all these zombies and other end-of-days horrorscapes. So I envisioned a series of interviews on the apocalyptic, and I have a couple lined up. But last summer, I conducted a fascinating interview with the world-renowned scholar of mysticism, Bernard McGinn. Naomi Shenstone Donnelly Professor Emeritus of Historical Theology and of the History of Christianity in the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, McGinn has also written extensively on apocalyptic thought, and I was very grateful that he was willing to talk to me about the origins of apocalypticism. We spoke by phone. The quality of the recording is imperfect. His voice was also giving him some trouble, but I think you'll find our conversation quite interesting. In a section of our talk I haven't included, he recommended I read the book The Sense of an Ending by Frank Kermode. It's a dense but fascinating book in which Kermode, who was a literary critic, examines how fundamental apocalyptic narrative, or what McGinn referred to at one point as the apocalyptic imagination, is to storytelling in the West. Think of the basic structure of most fictions, a beginning, a middle, and an end, that move forward in time with a sense that the end confers meaning on what precedes it. That is a fundamentally apocalyptic structure. In our conversation, McGinn and I talk about the book of Revelation, which is of course the most well-known apocalyptic text, but we also refer to earlier traditions, notably in Judaism, which were precursors to Christian apocalyptic texts. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, or the Revelation of John as it is sometimes called, you might want to go back and look at it. I'll also link to a summary in the episode notes. One of the things that I read in your writing was the idea that that Christianity was, in a sense, born apocalyptic, that there's that it's very much written into the tradition. I was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, well, and I think that's quite true. I mean, Christianity, the, the apocalyptic uh, mentality in its, uh, you know, its most identifiable sense really begins in late uh, Judaism, late Second Temple Judaism, so a couple of centuries before Christ. And there's a big debate, of course, as to how far Jesus himself and his preaching might have uh, you know, been apocalyptic or not. Scholars go back and forth on that, but I think there's a general sense today that uh, a good deal of uh, Jesus' original preaching, insofar as we can recover that, partakes of an apocalyptic mindset. But it's quite certain that a lot of the early Jesus followers uh, in the first century or more were definitely shaped by apocalyptic uh, traditions. I mean, uh, not only the Revelation of John, which is obvious to everybody, but there's a tremendous amount of apocalyptic tropes and mindsets and ideas in, in the Pauline epistles. So that Christianity, and this wasn't my invention, a number of Christian 
biblical scholars, I'm not technically a big biblical scholar, but a number of biblical scholars from the middle of the, really from the early part of the, of the 20th century on, you know, began to emphasize the apocalyptic matrix, the apocalyptic basis, if you will, of early Christianity. So it's, it, it's a part of Christianity that's there. The question is, and, and it remains there, the question is, what do we do with it? And of course, that has been interpreted in different kinds of ways. Right. The people we speak of today mostly are, let's, what, you know, we might call them very literalist uh, apocalypticists, which is very, very strong, and of course, a lot of evangelical traditions, especially. And people like myself and others who study apocalypticism have talked about it in a more transformed or symbolic way rather than a literal sense. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of this in my book on, on Antichrist traditions, you know, where I say I take the, the Antichrist traditions seriously, but not literally. Seriously, in the sense that they have something to tell us about the nature of human evil and the way in which, you know, the view of absolute evil changes in the course of Christian history, and which gives us a good insight into certain periods and times. But I'm not a literal believer in a coming. Yeah, I wondered, as somebody who's who's not a theologian at all, going back over Revelation and you know, seeing how Satan comes into the text very early on. Um, reading that, I, I felt as though there was a sort of tension there between, I don't know, tension's not necessarily the right word, but almost a conflict between certain teachings of Jesus and that much more black and white sense of good and evil. Is that something that people have wrestled with in the Christian tradition? Yeah, no, uh, I mean, the book of Revelation is is the great mystery book and the great book of contention. It always has been from the beginning. It almost didn't make it into the canon of the books of the New Testament. There's a big quarrel over it in the 2nd and the 3rd century. And then the interpretation of the history of Revelation, of course, is fascinating because it's been read in so many different kinds of ways. And um, as I said, there's um, camps of literalists, there are camps of symbolists, there are camps of groups that are of scholars that are in between, etc. But it's one way of uh, illuminating the history of Christianity is through the use and abuse and uh, interpretation of the book of Revelation. And it, it lends itself to a tremendous uh, influence on poetry, in art, in drama. I mean, it's, a, it's a, such an intensely visual and symbolic book that... Uh, its power, you know, it's, it has a kind of symbolic power to it that's, um, uh, I think, in, in some ways, unique in the New Testament. Yeah, it, it's so highly allegorical and, as you say, visual, which seems to be a feature of apocalyptic writing in general. Am I right about that? Yes, yeah, I think that's certainly correct. Uh, the Jewish uh, apocalypses, as I said, they begin around the 2nd century um, second or third century before Christ, and then the early Christian apocalypses as well. And there's a whole range of apocalyptic uh, literature, of course, many, many texts. The only one that makes it into the New Testament is the <clears throat> is the Revelation of John. But you know, there's a famous so-called little apocalypse, which is uh, is, is found in the three synoptic gospels. Jesus' speech about the end times that you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and uh, that's certainly an apocalyptic text. What, does it go back to Jesus or not? I mean, today I think the the majority of uh, New Testament scholars would probably think it does reflect Jesus' preaching. Hmm. So, to help me understand better the distinction between the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, my understanding was that the Messiah plays a, a big role in the 
Jewish apocalyptic tradition, do you think that part of the reason that it became so central to the Christian text is because of of Jesus essentially fulfilling that part yeah. of the story? Well, remember, Christianity begins in Judaism. It's a, it's course. a form of Judaism. And uh, the Second Temple Judaism, which, of course, is destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 A.D., has two uh, offspring. One of them is current rabbinic Judaism. The other one is Christianity. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wanted to ask you, you point out that the Christian view of history is eschatological. I was wondering, for the sake of my listeners, if you could sort of define what that means and explain how that's different from what we call apocalyptic. Well, <clears throat> the, you know, the difference in the relationship between the terms eschatology and apocalyptic is, you know, one of the subjects of, of debate. I take eschatology as a broader term, which means any doctrine about the end time, whether that end time is seen as proximate and predictable or not, whereas apocalypticism is a form of eschatology that very deliberately believes that one can predict the end time in some way, and that the end time is in some way imminent, and uh, that imminence may be a psychological imminence or it may be a predictive kind of imminence. So apocalypticism is a particular form of eschatology, but there are forms of eschatology that are non-apocalyptic. A good example would be St. Augustine's Theology of History in the City of God, which certainly, you know, is eschatological in the sense that the whole historical process is moving towards the end, the goal, the eschaton. Mm-hmm. But Augustine is anti-apocalyptic in the sense he says you, nobody can predict when this is going to come because it's known only to God. I see. This is sort of a broad question, but I, I'm fascinated by this idea that so intrinsic to Christianity is this sense of a beginning and an end. And I, I just wonder, do you think that, you know, in Christian texts that gives a sense of meaning to history and a sense of sort of purpose to the present, that sense of we know where we started, we know where we're, where we're going? No, no I, I think that's the, the essence of the whole, uh, 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 if you will, of the whole scenario. I mean, as you read the Bible, the Bible in the book of Genesis tells us where it all started. Then it gives us the story of, of the process and God's, um, you know, salvation history. And then it gives us the picture of the end that you get in the, uh, in the book of Revelation and also in those apocalyptic texts elsewhere in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament. So it gives people, believers, a sense of, that history has a structure it has a meaning, it has a divine plan, and the apocalypticists believe that, you know, that, that enough has been revealed so that you can know what the divine plan is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. One of the things I wonder about with respect to the Christian tradition in general and the current crisis we're facing with climate change and so on is the sense that in Christianity that, you know, the ultimate hope is, to, is sort of otherworldly. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I did at one point have a religious education, but like I said, this is not really my background. The, the, the idea that you're going towards a more perfect world, and I wonder if that in some way sort of diminishes the importance of what happens on earth. And yet, it was interesting to me that in the text of Revelation, it says, when it gets to the New Jerusalem, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So I was wondering if you could comment on that particular verse. Is the earth in some sense 
just a, a passage that we have to get through to get to what is more real. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of the literalist apocalypticism that you find in the evangelicals today certainly thinks that that, you know, that that is the case, and this is one of the reasons that they're not so much concerned about climate issues at all. Mm. Um, but when you look at the picture at the end uh, there, I mean, there is, there's a new heaven, a new earth, and the heavenly Jerusalem descends, it comes down. So there is a kind of transformation of history and society on earth, and there's also the you know, Apocalypse 20, Revelation 20, deals with this the prediction about the coming millennium, the millennium kingdom, the better kingdom. Now, you always arrive at the better state, whether it's in heaven or on earth, you always arrive at it through trial and tribulation. So the apocalyptic, I call it scenario, because it's kind of a play, if you will, with the scenes and characters that work, work through this. The apocalyptic scenario is always a mixture, mixture of pessimism and optimism. That is, and pessimism about the near time coming when the signs reveal that there will be tribulation, there will be attacks, there will be destruction, etc., etc. But that pessimism and fear, if you will, is counterbalanced and overcome by the expectation that there will indeed be a better time to come, whether you want to call it a millennium or uh, heaven on earth. The difference between the um, apocalyptic mentality and the ecological mentality is uh, the notion of the uh, divine control. Because in the apocalyptic uh, mindset, this is always God's plan for history. In terms of ecology, I think we think of this much more in terms of nature and the natural process, and what can go wrong with the natural process if we don't strive to correct, you know, the evils that have been already uh, already done, already performed. Right. So you right. move it, you move it, you move it from a sacred dimension to what we might call a natural dimension. But the structure of the argument made in in a lot of uh, ecological literature, I think, is is very similar to the structure of the argument and the scenario that you see in the traditional apocalyptic literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, th those narratives are, are in some ways so baked into our culture, I suspect, that they, they shape the way that we interpret our reality one way or another. Yeah, there, I mean, there are a lot of people who would like to get rid of the book of Revelation. Uh, and some very famous people said, well, it's a disgrace to have this thing at the end of the New Testament. I mean, it's a book of violence, which it is. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a mixed kind of bag, but it's there. And the question is, you're not going to get rid of it. And what, what then do you do with it? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the ways that it can be interpreted, and it has to be interpreted symbolically, is as a call for uh, for justice in society. It was used that way during the struggle against the apartheid regime, for example. Some very interesting commentaries were written in South Africa by uh, people who were attacking the apartheid regime, saying, you know, the Book of Revelation was a call to uh, to establish justice in society against the evils of uh, persecution, etc. You write at one point that apocalypticism is a is a learned tradition. I, I believe you contrast it with the tradition of prophecy in Judaism, that it's a sort of written tradition. Do you think there's something significant about that? Well, you know, in its origins, it's a, it's a learned tradition. It's learned scribes trying to interpret what's happening, particularly uh, in the second and third century before Christ, when the Jews are being persecuted for their religion. <clears throat> learned scribes are trying to say, well, how, what's the meaning of this? And so they write down these visions uh, and uh, apocalyptic texts, which are almost always put not in their own 
names, but in the names of revered figures in the tradition, you know, like Enoch or or various other people, so that this is a secret book written down at a time. It's now being revealed, and it will help the believers to withstand persecution and to uh, hope for the coming reward. That's the, the pessimistic and the optimistic sides. So, I mean, it, uh, it, it's a learned tradition, but then it's promulgated to a people, so that it has, a, has an important popular dimension as well. But it, 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 starts, it starts out with learned, learned figures. I mean, take, take the figure of John. He, he's a prophet in, in the early Christian communities who receives these visions and then who writes them in letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. He has letters to the churches, and then along with the letter comes, comes the, uh, the visions. So, so what do we know about John at this point? Well, we know that he wasn't the John who wrote the gospel. They were conflated in early Christianity, but there must be two different the styles are so different, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, he fits right within uh, the Christians around the year 100 or so, when wandering prophets were very much a part of the early Christian communities. Wandering prophets are kind of pushed out later on as the church moves more in a kind of Episcopal or bishop-directed model. And, um, you know, that's that's about it. We know where he was active. We pretty much know when he was active, but we don't have any evidence for him outside of the book itself. But he, he fits within a model that we have a lot of evidence about, prophets, uh, wandering prophets who are important in the Christian communities. And, and my understanding is that Revelation can be interpreted as sort of a political diatribe, and perhaps I'm sort of, that's an anachronism well, it, in some ways, but... Well, it, it, it surely has a political dimension, because it's identifying Rome with the powers of evil, and it's seeing the Roman persecution of Christians. Now, how much persecution there was is a big question, <laughs> but certainly persecution is also in the mind of the person being persecuted. So John and his audience think that there's a lot of persecution going on, and the persecutor is uh, is the beast, the beast who stands for uh, Roman uh, Roman paganism and Roman, from their point of view, idolatry. So it is it is a very anti-Roman book, which is one of the things that got it into trouble later on, when the Christians sought accommodation with the Roman Empire. Uh, you know, a lot of them say, "Well, this book is very anti-Roman. Is it really? Is it really a canonical book? Should it be read in all the churches?" The, the other thing that got the Book of Revelation into trouble was the prediction of an earthly kingdom of a thousand years. Because Christians, again, were moving much more towards a kind of spiritual interpretation that would place the reward only in heaven, not on earth. Oh, so that's for those two reasons, For those two reasons, Revelation, the big d- dispute over Revelation beginning the 2nd century, 3rd century, and on. And, um, but it stays in the canon. It's more influential in, in Western Christianity than in Eastern Christianity. Why do you think that is? Uh, because the quarrel mostly took place in the East, that is, the quarrel over the legitimacy of the book. I see. So it, it left a kind of suspicion. There's a lot more, for, ex- for example, there's a lot more commentaries on the book of Revelation in Latin Western Christianity than there is in Eastern Christianity. And it has a, it, it has a more important place in the liturgy uh, in Western Christianity as well. So going, when you say, you know, the beast is Rome or, or the Roman emperor, is there a sense in which the struggle between good and evil is sort of doubled between the, the sort of supernatural dimension and then what's happening politically in their lives? 
Is there sort of yeah? Well, I, 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 the persecutor is seen as a representation of the powers of evil, and even as uh, you know, uh, as the the agent of Satan, if you will. When John talks symbolically about the beasts uh, in uh, in chapter thirteen, for example, someone's certainly talking about you know the Roman Empire. Exactly what the significance of the various heads and all this other stuff is has been debated and talked about endlessly, but there's no question, I think, that the beast represents Rome. And then the um, the great dragon in, in chapter 12 certainly represents Satan, but its heads seem to represent, in some way, you know, earthly powers that uh, are working under Satan. So it's a it's a book of very stark colors, of course, between the good figures and the bad figures, and they're always presented in highly symbolic form. The lamb versus the dragon... Uh, you know, the woman in heaven versus the harlot sitting on the beast, etc. Which is one of the sources of the book's uh, power and influence. Yes, yes, <laughs> I can imagine. So what about, what are, are there pre-Christian precursors for Satan? Does Satan come from the Jewish tradition? I feel as though I should know this, but I don't. Yeah, yeah, no, certainly so. I mean, there's... Um, the seven-headed dragon, and the, the Encyclopedia of Apocalypticism that uh, my friends John uh, Collins and Steve Stein and I put together came out around the year 2000 for the millennium. And the, the book on the origins of Apocalypticism, uh, Volume 1, that John Collins edited, has a picture that I once saw in the um, Bible Museum, actually, in Jerusalem. And it's a Sumerian uh, tablet from the second millennium with a seven-headed dragon. Mm. So that that theme goes way way back in uh, in Near Eastern uh, Near Eastern mythology, and the figure of Satan, of course, gradually emerges in the Old Testament. You have the figure of Satan in the Book of Job, for example. It's not quite what's hard to make out. He seems like he's more of an an angel accuser than a completely evil figure. But then the figure of uh, Satan and Satan's stand-ins is certainly found in a lot of these Jewish apocalyptic texts prior to Christianity. And do you think Satan is attached to monotheistic traditions, or is there a... Is to there what, a what traditions? Monotheistic? Monothe- or, is it, or is there like a pagan Satan that he blends with in some way, or is he very distinct? Well, <clears throat> um, it's an interesting question because, I mean, obviously... These seven-headed dragon figures occur in the mythology of uh, Mesopotamia and various other kinds of places. So they're within they're within paganism, but they're taken over uh, into Judaism and into Christianity, where in some ways they tend to, you know, get a little more of a human kind of characteristic. I mean, this is why Antichrist is such an interesting uh, interesting figure because he's Antichrist. That is, he becomes the exact reverse to everything that Christians come to believe that Christ represents, will be represented by the Antichrist. And uh, the term occurs only rarely in the New Testament, but some of the figures in the Revelation of John, and also in uh, Paul's uh, epistle, Second Thessalonians, about the, you know, the destroyer who is going to come and the one who will masquerade in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, first of all, sit in the temple pretending to be God. I mean, these are later on interpreted as, as this figure of Antichrist. And then the Antichrist figure, you don't have an Antichrist in, in early Judaism, but by the 5th or 6th century of the Christian era, the Jews also are bringing over a kind of Antichrist figure, and there's an Antichrist figure in, in Islam as well. 
So from its formation in Christianity, in a sense, it, it flows back into Judaism, and it also influences uh, it also influences Islam. Hmm. Interesting. So it's only in those three monotheistic faiths that you get the Antichrist figure. You get lots of figures of evil, symbolic evil, dragons, uh, other evil beasts, or other evil uh, gods in many many pagan traditions, including the ancient. The ancient Near Eastern ones that influenced Judaism. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about it loosely, it seems like a devil or a figure of evil is bound to function differently in a monotheistic tradition than in a pagan one, right? Um, yeah, no, I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons when we when we did that Encyclopedia of Apocalypticism. Um, <clears throat> You know, the question came up as we were discussing it, whether we try to do apocalyptic-like traditions in other faiths. <clears throat> but there are apocalyptic-like traditions in other faiths, but I think it's much more coherent to speak of it as a monotheistic phenomenon in, in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Well, and it seems that one important dimension of that is the conception of time, right? In a lot of yeah. pagan traditions, time is much more cyclical. Whereas this idea of a beginning and an end is obviously intrinsic to the idea of the apocalypse. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's a, that's a very important difference, but it can be nuanced in various ways. I mean, there are interactions between linear and cyclical versions of time, obviously. But the, I mean, the idea that there is a story with a definite beginning, a course or narrative, and a coming end, and the coming end gives meaning to the whole story. That's very, very much the apocalyptic notion. So one of the things I found interesting, too, about um, Revelation of John is the fact that there is warfare not just on earth, but in heaven. Can you tell us a little, maybe describe a little bit what that warfare is about and, and, and how that was received? Well, I mean, th th this, is, this is the notion that the struggle on earth between good and evil is uh, a, a mirror, or if you will, a participant the patient in the struggle between good and evil in the, in the heavenly realm. And this is where the figure of the dragon and, my, and the combat between the dragon and Michael the angel in, in uh, chapter 12 is so important. Because it's because these things happen in heaven that they also have, have, effects, have effects on earth. And the, um, the notion, of course, would be that from the apocalyptic mindset, the, the believers who are now suffering under the powers of evil they're not going to save themselves. Their job description is to suffer persecution faithfully, faithfully is the important word, and to wait for heavenly relief. Mm -hmm. is, that, is it fair to say that this sense that there's a mirror between what's happening on earth and what's happening in heaven is a consistent theme in that text? Oh, I think so. Yeah, I mean, if you read through it, I mean, you, John goes up to heaven and gets his revelations, but then he comes back to earth, and the revelations that he was given in heaven tell him some of the things that are going to happen on earth. And then you have that picture of the struggle, you know, in heaven between the um, seven-headed dragon and Michael. And then, of course, you have in chapter 19 and 20, the uh, rider with the white horse who conquers, who comes down as a divine rider, who's the Messiah, so who's obviously Christ, who comes down to destroy the forces of evil and to uh, initiate the millennial, uh, the millennial realm in chapter twenty. Is that is that somewhat unique in in Revelation? This um, this mirroring of heaven and earth. 
Oh no, it, it's it's typical. Of, it's typical of all the apocalyptic, uh, the um, particularly the Jewish apocalypses of the a couple of centuries before that. And a lot of times, those apocalypses sometimes are more historical, but other times they're just more heavenly. That is, the seer is taken on a heavenly trip and shown the mysteries of the cosmos, and then is sent back down to reveal the mysteries of the cosmos. So there's some apocalypses in terms of the, the genre of a revelation given by an intermediate figure to a seer. Then some of them are pretty much cosmological. Others of them mix the historical and the cosmological. Well, I just, I, I'm not quite sure where to go with that yet, but I'm intrigued by that mirroring and, and what it might mean in terms of how you interpret the significance of what's happening on Earth. I mean, obviously, it seems, like you said, part of the question is sort of who is the author of this story? And that might be one way of, of seeing that mirroring. But, but also, it, it seems like things are very much imbued with meaning, yeah, well, I think in the, in the traditional apocalyptic scenario or imaginative uh, narrative, uh, God is the author of the whole thing, whereas today with with ecology, nature is the author. Mm-hmm. But but nature nature can be uh, circumvented by human activity, and so it's dependent upon humans to try to uh, cooperate with nature rather than to uh, destroy nature or circumvent nature's plan. So, so I know that you've studied apocalyptic writing in the Middle Ages, and I imagine all the way up to the present, and there's arguably a way in which the apocalyptic stories are reimagined, are a mirror of their time in some respect. Yeah, um, well, that's basically what I, what I try to do in my book on, on Antichrist. I've never written a whole history of the apocalyptic, but it would be too much, as we try to do in that uh, multi-author uh, three-volume encyclopedia. But I took what for me was one of the most interesting aspects of the whole apocalyptic tradition, which is the Antichrist figure. And the book I did on that does try to bring it right down to the present, including 20th century manifestations in art and literature and uh, you know where, where we are with this kind of... So is there anything that you've noticed recently in sort of the, the tenor of these kinds of stories? Um, they don't go away. <laughs> That's one of the things that I've noticed. You know, a lot of people thought, well, with the year 2000, I mean, they, you know, it was very, very strange when you when you come down to it. But uh, and some people thought, well, when Y2K meant nothing, <clears throat> then this would lead to a decline of things apocalyptic. It didn't, of course, because these kinds of beliefs and these kinds of stories, I think, are part of uh, of the tradition, particularly in the in you know in the uh, in the three monotheistic faith. So they get reinterpreted in different, uh, you know, in different ways. And a literal apocalypticism, for worse, not for better, but literal apocalypticism for worse is, is, I think, stronger today than it has been for a long, long time due to the political influence of evangelicals. And there are apocalyptic, ele- there are apocalyptic elements in, 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 in radical Islam and radical Judaism as, uh, as well today. Think of the Jews who want to rebuild the temple and they're rebuilding the temple to initiate the, the Messiah and the Millennial Kingdom. And yet if they were to try to rebuild the temple, think of what a political, what political chaos would ensue. So these are dangerous traditions in many ways, particularly if they're literalized. I hope you are all keeping safe and healthy while you social distance. 
Coming up, I've been touching base with some of my previous guests, including Doug Tallamy and Marcia Bjornrud, to find out what they're up to during the nationwide quarantine and to get their perspective on the pandemic. I'll be stitching that together to share with you soon. In the meanwhile, take care.